Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with another exclusive episode for premium members of The Yacking Show. First up, let me introduce co-host Kathleen Beauvais from Waterloo, Ontario. Hi, Kathleen. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you so much. And Happy New Year to everyone. Um, We always have interesting guests um, who are experts in their fields for our premium members. And today is no exception. We have the great pleasure of welcoming back Jim Marshall. And if anyone has not seen his previous premium episode, I would urge you to please go and watch that, which we will link in the video below. So Jim Marshall is the author of a book entitled Septemics, Hierarchies of Human Phenomenon. It's a book about a unique transformative, revolutionary social science. Septemics is a system that helps us understand human behavior in many different areas applicable to both business and life. And I can't wait to delve into the next phase of this. So, uh, Jim, welcome to the show once again. How are you? I'm fine. Happy to see you. Happy to see you too. Now, Jim, for those who have not had the benefit of watching your previous show, and as I mentioned, I really would urge everyone to watch that. Can you please give us a little bit again about a recap about your background and what led you to write this incredible book? Right. Uh, first, I once want to clarify, we did two previous productions. Yes. One for our premium members. Yes. Yeah. I see. Okay. One was sort of general and the other one was yep. focusing on specific yes. skills. Okay. So so for the, the new people who don't know me, I am the discoverer of hitherto unknown natural phenomena, which greatly aided the understanding of people, from which... I created a revolutionary practical philosophic system and published it in the book, Septemics, Hierarchies of Human Phenomena. Uh, 27 years of direct observation has shown that this book will dramatically improve the life of anyone who takes advantage of it. And that's why I wrote it. Uh, As for my own qualifications, I'm a polymathic intellectual whose areas of expertise include psychology, philosophy, theology, uh, parapsychology, science, engineering, mathematics, law, literature, history, metaphysics, military science, political science, physical culture, education, organization, and music. And I hold a Bachelor of Science cum laude from City University of New York. Wow. Very good. So, um, are we ready to start with Jim's presentation, which will make it easier for our audience? Right. Sure. Let me just say a couple of words about define septemics for new people. Septemics is a philosophical science based on the fact that many phenomena related to human beings occur in a sequence of seven levels. Literally, the word septemics means of or pertaining to seven. Septemis comprises a collection of scales or sequences, each of which breaks down various human phenomena into a hierarchy of seven steps. There are 35 such scales which span the spectrum of human experience, by which I mean any situation which arises in the life of any person can be usefully analyzed by one or more of these scales, usually more than one. And today we're going to look at specific scales, and I'm going to talk about some of the specific scales briefly. 
Excellent. And and for our audience as well, um, I have Jim's book. I've read it and I'm reading it, parts of it for the third time. And as he says, it is very, very interesting, uh, both for business and life, to see how... Oh, there you are. Kathleen's Just got it up, it up there. I don't know if it's backwards. We, or... Yeah, we can see that okay. perfectly. And that a link to that book would be available in the description of both the on the video and the audio and on our Yaki Show website. Great. So today we are starting with chapter nine in the book, which is the scale uh scale of control so i'm going to flip over and start the presentation running so it's a okay so first of all the first thing i need to say about this is most people and i'm talking about maybe 90 percent, at least 90 percent, have a misconception about control control is an inherently positive thing anytime anybody succeeds at anything it's because of control uh, Pavarotti could control his voice. Uh, Babe Ruth could control the baseball that was pitched at him. Uh, Obama could control his voice when he gave a speech. It was very clear. So many people have the misconception that control is a bad thing. Uh, now, that's because they have it mixed up with domination. Mm-hmm. Domination is a bad thing, but control is not. So that's the first thing you have to realize. So if you want to succeed in anything, it's absolutely a function of control. Okay, so the people who are at the top of this scale uh, are very responsible people and very loving people. And they're usually people who can create. They can either create novels or roles in a play, or businesses, okay? People at the bottom, level seven is must not control. These people are inhibited. They assume no responsibility for anything and they're motivated by hatred. Mm. So it's important to realize, first of all, this is a linear scale uh, as opposed to uh, a quantum scale, uh, meaning it goes... There, there are intervening steps. Like, let's say you're at level five, cannot control. If you, as you improve, you improve slightly toward slight control. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there are gradations in between, uh, which is not true of all the scales. Some of the scales are quantum scales, meaning there is a change of polarity between, between mm-hmm. the levels. So there is no intervening uh, state. Uh, so this one, as you improve your control, you improve your control by taking more responsibility. So anytime you're having trouble with anything, it's because you're not assuming enough responsibility for it. Now, there may be all kinds of circumstances that are preventing you from assuming responsibility. Uh, let's say the guy's wife is a drunk and does crazy things that inhibits him from assuming responsibility for Mm -hmm. his household, see? So whether it's internal or external, if you don't assume responsibility, you're going to be near the bottom of this scale. So that's what it's all about. Control and responsibility uh, are inextricably linked. And so just to clarify then, Jim, when we're talking about 
a controlling individual. We're talking about a dominating or domineering person, but that's not what this is about. This is a person who is in control of various aspects of their life. That's right. Like, for example, somebody insults you, right? And you feel like punching him in the nose, but you don't do it because you know that's not smart and you're in control of yourself. Right. So I've got a question for you, Jim, to follow up that one. Yeah. Where, where, where are the majority of people on this scale? Well, as is the case with all of the scales, it's a sort of a, a bell curve where there's mm-hmm. very few people at the top and very few people at the bottom. Uh, so I don't have any real good demographic information about this. Uh, but I don't know how useful that is anyway, because if you just look at the person, like if a person is showing mastery, you know, uh, he's in very good control of that area. Like uh, Aaron Judge, uh, who just set the record for the most home runs in a single season in the American League and signed a $360 million contract as a result of that. He is clearly in very good control of the ball. When the ball comes to him, he hits it better than anybody else living right now. So that's mastery. Right. Okay. So if you just observe people, you can spot, you know, what is this guy? Is this guy competent? Competent is not as is not as good as mastery. So you, this is a really easy scale to use. Okay. But then you have to observe them. Sorry, Jim, but so what we're talking about is the scale of control in specific areas of a person's life, not necessarily their overall way of being, correct? Well, no, there are people, there are people who are in very good control, uh, meaning they're very responsible people generally. Okay. You know, like if you have a guy, he doesn't break any laws. He has no vices, you know, he's not in debt, you know, he uh, doesn't get into any trouble in his life. This is a person who is in control of things, he's control, okay. in control of his finances, in control of his home and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there are people who are generally good at this, you know, the, the person who's like chronically high on the scale. But you can also break it down specifically like, well, you may be, may be good at controlling your business but not so good at controlling your interpersonal relationships. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can provide, use it to either in a general or a specific way. Now notice it's called a specific scale, which means it's, it's more uh, towards specific things, but there is also a general application. Mm. Good. So let's, shall we move on to the next, the next scale? Yes. Yes. Uh, where's my cursor going there? The scale of stopping. Yes. Now, this is something that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, because the scale of stopping, it, it, it means the ability to discontinue something. But it also means the ability to prevent something, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So somebody who at the top of the scale, level one, cannot be stopped. That person is invincible. This this would be somebody like Samson or Hercules. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Now, a person at the bottom of this scale 
must not stop. He's compulsive about this thing, whatever it is. You know, he compulsively smokes cigarettes. He knows it's going to kill him. He knows it's wrong. He knows it's bad for him. But it, that smoking must not stop. It's even more obvious in alcoholics. You know, mm-hmm. that yeah. drinking must not stop. He's compulsive about it. So at the top of the scale is freedom, at the bottom of the scale is entrapment. And notice in the middle, there's a dividing line between sane behavior and insane behavior. If you're at level three, two, or one, you are sane in the corresponding area. And if you're at four, five, six, seven, you're insane in the corresponding area. So for example, Bill Clinton, brilliant politician, brilliant. Even his enemies admit that. But when it comes to women, very different thing. He was near the bottom of the scale. Right. You know? So I'm not labeling him. I'm just saying it's a good example of somebody who is very good at one thing, you know, high on the scale in one area, low on the scale in another. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's, that is interesting. So in, in your book, I highlighted a sentence, a person at level six will utterly detest anyone at level one or two as he or she must stop them. Hence the oppression of the most able <clears throat> by totalitarians. And uh, I think yes. we've, seen, we've seen a little bit of that in various countries around the world in the last three years. But um, that, that tends to put it into perspective for me. So do you want to talk a bit more about that? Sure. Well, the oppression of the Christians by the Romans is a perfect example of that. Yeah. The early Christians were transcendent people. They knew they were spiritual beings. They knew they were going to die and go to heaven. Uh, and they didn't, they weren't really too upset if you killed them. Because you have to remember in those days, there were no analgesics. There were no antibiotics. Uh, the average length of life was about 30 years anyway. So, you know, that's a perfect example of the fascistic, oppressive Romans uh, trying to exterminate a group of people who were really harmless. Uh, Also with Hitler and the Jews. I mean, it is a cliche about the Jewish intelligence. I mean, if you just look at the United States, the highest earning demographic group in the United States are Jews. Mm -hmm. That's because they dominate medicine, they dominate law, they dominate uh, Hollywood, they dominate journalism. And so that's why a maniac like Hitler must stop. He had to stop them. Right. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, shall we move on to the next one? Yes. We now have the scale of scholarship. This one I found particularly interesting. So and, over to you, Jim. Yeah. Well, actually, I just want to I just want to read a comment or uh, something you wrote in your book here. You say that, and then you can go and expand on this more, Jim. But you say universal education is a huge waste of taxpayers' money because some tremendous proportion of public school students are at levels five, six, or seven. So I'll leave it to you to explain that to the audience. Right. Okay, so level seven, this is something that's a new idea to most people, is what I call a non-student. A non-student will not learn. Mm. Forcing this person to sit in a classroom not only does no good for him, it disrupts the whole environment. You know, this is a guy who ridicules somebody because he gets high grades. This person will not learn. 
okay? Uh, and forcing them to stay in school accomplishes nothing. There are stories about people who, uh, for example, the great Dr. Thomas Sowell dropped out of high school, uh, lived in poverty, and after a while he was smart enough to say, you know, this stinks. And he went back, eventually he went to Harvard, he got a doctorate, he became a world-famous writer. Uh, this was this was an inherently intelligent person who just would not learn. He didn't want to be there. So uh, my advice to those people is let them get a job in McDonald's. And if the guy says after a while, you know, I can't make any money this way. I'm going to go back to school. Good. Then he's not a non-student. Mm-hmm. Now, above that is a facile student. A facile student also really does not learn anything. He just pretends to learn. This is the type of person who can regurgitate information on a test, might get very good grades, but if you ask him a year or two later about the subject, he doesn't know anything. This is the type of person who boasts about doing a snow job on the teacher. (laughs) Okay? Now, above that is... A poor student, now everybody recognizes that, the poor student does not like to learn. Now, as I've mentioned before, I was absolutely shocked at the age of 10 to find out that some kids didn't like school. I can still remember that moment. It was a a turning point in my life. Uh, It really made me understand some of the other kids whose behavior just I could not understand until I found that out. Those are poor students. They do not like to learn. Now, if you use enough duress on them and compulsion, you can force them to learn somewhat, but it doesn't go easily or well. Mm. So the, the best thing about this chapter is I state with specificity how to make someone a better scholar. And that is information that does not exist in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. That is the thing that by the time I was out of college, I knew perfectly how to learn. So what I did many times is I took one course in a subject. And then I spent the rest of my life just continuing to learn that subject because I had enough for one course and becoming really an expert at that. Uh, just because I knew how to learn. And so I have put all of that into the chapter. So once you identify where the student is, you then can use the advice in the chapter to move the student up to the next level. And then he will be a better student. Very good. And um, I picked up something that intrigued me. You said conformity is antithetical to cognitive development. And uh, that reassured me because I, <clears throat> I've always been a nonconformist myself and seen many far more brilliant people than me also nonconformists. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, cognitively, you know, every person's mind is unique. Every person is yep. unique. And so, as I state in this chapter, teaching people in classes is a fundamentally dysfunctional model. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a few things that can be done in a class, like a demonstration, like a chemistry demonstration, 
or a physics demonstration, uh, but really individual attention to the student is much more efficient, much easier on the student, and will get much better results demographically across the board, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is why I think uh, we will eventually be moving into learning from computers. We will have a syllabus in front of you. All the course materials is there. And you have a teacher who comes around to just keep an eye that you're doing your, your studies. You know, you, is he going to answer questions? That's where everybody is sort of going at his own rate. And when you get to the end of your syllabus, you can, you can take a test. Okay, and you're done. So one guy might be able to do algebra in three months. Another guy might take a year. Rather than forcing them all into a single context, which is what conformity is. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There are many very highly intelligent, very knowledgeable people who are one way or another nonconformists. For sure. So is this why we're seeing a rise in the interest and practice of homeschooling in North America? Absolutely. Mm. A lot of people have figured that out. Mm-hmm. And I want Good. to point out the axis, the axis of the scale given on the right, yep. maximal interest at the top, minimal interest. It's about interest. Mm-hmm. The more interest you have is the indicator. You know, a very good student likes to learn because he's interested. interested. Yeah. He's interested. So, like, for example, I was at a, a party and I bumped into a guy who had lived in China for years. I said, Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me about it, you know? And I got a lot of interesting, I wanted to know about it because I like to learn. So I had this opportunity, unique opportunity to speak to this guy who had lived in China. This is many years ago before globalization where it was, it was a pretty rare thing. So uh, that's what you have to cultivate in the person, interest. Mm-hmm. Sure. Very good. Yeah. That that is very good, very and it, for our listeners and viewers, that is a really good chapter to read in Jim's book. That one, I I found a lot there that helped me tremendously. Let's move on, and we are on the scale of literacy. And and yes, with respect to the scale of literacy, I you know what has happened to the education system in most of the world that has caused I would say most of the population to be at low levels of this particular scale. Right. I can tell you that with precision. Okay. There is at most 8,000 people who control Earth. There's actually a book out on that, and the guy came up with the number 6,500. So a little bit of time has gone by and the population has increased. So I'm figuring, that's why I say at most 8,000 people. We're talking about the Rockefellers, mm-hmm. the Rothschilds, the DuPonts the Windsors, and so forth, okay? Mm -hmm. They do not want people to be literate. If you read 1984, Mm -hmm. it's in there, okay? The totalitarian does not want you to know. He doesn't want you to know about Cicero. He doesn't want you to know about Socrates. Socrates, (coughs) excuse me, he was given the choice between being sent away from civilization or committing suicide. And he chose suicide. And the reason for that is he was opening the minds of the young people. 
harangue. And the powers that controlled Athens didn't like that. So uh, literacy has been going down because it's intentionally subverted by the people in power. And I can tell you, in my youth, literacy was the rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I can barely find anybody that I would consider literate. A lot of this has to do with the internet and television, Mm -hmm. which is inherently not literate or uh, it's subversive to literacy. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it takes only a lazy mind to watch TV. Yeah. But it takes some intelligence to read Thomas Mann, Charles Dickens. You have to look up the words if you don't know them. Mm-hmm. Now, by the time you get to the stage where you can read Dickens or Dostoevsky without looking up the words, you're a literate person, okay? It's too late for the ruling caste to prevent you from becoming literate, unless they, you know, kill you or something, which they might do at some point. But if you read Fahrenheit 451, it was all about burning books, mm-hmm. right? In the future, that's right. they didn't want people to learn. So the underground were people who memorized books so the book would live on. Yeah. Yeah. And if we go back to before the days of the printing press, where books were very, very expensive and rare, it was only mainly the clergy and the elite uh, and the wealthy that had access to any reading at all. And therefore, they were the only ones who were literate, right? The, the peasants, the vast majority, had no ability to become literate. Yes. I have a, a highly intelligent client who has the view that we are re-entering a feudal age. Yes. Where you have the, the lords and the barons and the dukes at the top who are people like uh, Bezos and Elon Musk and uh, Tim Cook, the billionaires who control everything, Mm -hmm. and their lackeys in the government, and they are succeeding in dumbing down the population. Of course, drugs helps this because they make you stupid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we are going back to a feudal system where in the manor, the Lord and his children and his associates could read. And that was it. Yep. If he wanted to have find somebody else to read, he had to get the local priest around. That's right. That was it. And, so that's, and, that's where we're headed. I, I agree. And another parallel of that is because of the effects or the use of the virus, anyone who disagreed with the mainstream idea was prevented from earning money. I'm talking doctors, nurses, and a whole swathe of people who um, who disagreed. And now, Kathleen and I were talking earlier, we have uh, Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson and successful author who's being uh, reprimanded by the College of Psychologists because they don't like what he's saying. So being prevented from earning an income, exactly what happened in the feudal system. If you didn't do what your baron said, you went and lived in the field somewhere. So, yeah, no, you're right there. Uh, a more specific comment I had reading in this section was your comment that the scale is vital, engaging, and developing the ability of oneself or another, uh, because if you try to operate at a level 
other than the correct one, you will certainly fail. And then you say teachers, managers, and coaches make this mistake often. So I think that is uh, what we've just been talking about. Yes. Yeah, and particularly relevant in the and educational I, I sphere. It's, it's worth mentioning, looking at this scale, how, see, most people think, well, either you're literate or you're illiterate, right? So that is the usage that has been handed down to us. And that is incorrect. There are seven levels of literacy. Level four is literate. And in between literate and illiterate, there were two levels, semi-literate and sub-literate. Right. So at the bottom level, illiterate, you have primitives, like the Native Americans who had no writing at all. They had no literacy, right? They lived a primitive life. Uh, then you come up into the barbaric level where people can sign a check, uh, can read uh, a summons that says, you know, you must go to court. Uh, they can maybe read some things regarding their job. But they're really barbaric people. They're not literate people. I mean, I actually had a client to me who gratuitously uh, dismissed the idea of Shakespeare. You know, I don't want to read Shakespeare. I don't want to know anything about Shakespeare. Uh, you know, he's the greatest playwright in human history. One of the greatest geniuses of Earth. That's how barbaric people are. Mm -hmm. Some people would call these people Philistines. So then when you get to the top four, you have civilized people. There is no civilization without literacy yep. because the essence of civilization is that each generation hands down what it has learned to the previous generation. And if it's not written down, that does not occur. Correct. Which is why America is, uh, I used to say it was circling the drain uh, but now I would say it's going down the drain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I know some people will argue that and they'll point to ancient civilizations where information was handed down verbally in folk tales and father to son, but it was very limited in scope. And I know having lived in Africa, I, I know some, some of how that worked. So there were some basic instructions that could be handed down, but verbally there's no way you can provide the next generation with enough information to for a society like we have at the moment to continue it's just not possible right and you have to realize that there are millions of doctors and lawyers and uh financiers and you name it who are barbaric people yep they're barbaric they want money uh they want to buy drugs and liquor and women and fancy cars they're not civilized people. As opposed to, for example, if you look at the society of Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have to be selected to get into the society of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It is basically a group of intellectuals, Catholic intellectuals. They're all highly educated person. They are very civilized people. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that is a very important scale, that one. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, you got any more for Jim, or shall we move on to memory? As it says, this scale aligns with the scale of management. Okay. So what I have discovered is that managing people correctly is largely a function of where the person is on this scale. 
You see, if a person is a genius, right, the way to handle that person is establish an organization around that. This tells you pretty quickly. Like, for example, Einstein is an institution. You know, there's like a whole subculture built around him. He is a genius. He's a unique person, okay? A genius is unique. You can't take that guy and stick him in a company. That's not going to work. Below that is a virtuoso. Uh, this is a person who is so good at what he does that it's artistic, even if he's not in an artistic field. Uh, and when you have a virtuoso, you market him. See, that's a, that's a management function. So you have somebody like uh, Jimi Hendrix was discovered. He was, you know, struggling in Greenwich Village in the 60s. Somebody discovered him and they packaged him and, you know, the rest is history. They marketed him. They, they, they got a couple of backup musicians who were very good, who were at his level, and he changed the whole trajectory of rock music because he was a virtuoso. Below that is an expert. An expert is a master at something. Now, he hasn't quite gotten to the point where it's artistic, but this is a person who you get him to refine the product. An expert is somebody you put in charge of quality control in your business. So as you see on the right, the organizational level runs, and notice it runs in the opposite direction mm -hmm. And it's out of sequence. So, for example, uh, in the scale of management, if you have an ignoramus, uh, which is, you have to realize, everyone is an ignoramus in a great number of areas, if not mm -hmm. in an infinite number of areas, okay? All you can do with that person is interact with him. Meaning you can say, hello, how are you? Would you like to come in? That's all you can do. So you have to, level two is essentially disseminate to him. You say, yes, come in. Uh, we have a dojo here and we teach uh, oriental martial arts. And he, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know the difference between jujitsu and judo, you know? But you have to just interact with him. Uh, you can't really promote to him. If a person is a layman, you can promote to him. He is a consumer. An ignoramus knows so little, he's not going to spend any money. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even know what you're talking about. But a layman is a consumer. You know, he, he sort of knows what you do. Enough that you can promote to him and he will spend a little money. So this is a very sophisticated scale, uh, both of these scales, the scale of management and scale of human ability that inter interact. And it is uh, very important for anyone who manages anything to know this data. You have people in business who get somebody come in, come in who's an expert, right? And they try to put him into a cog in this machine. It doesn't work out. The guy winds up quitting. You follow me? He's, yep, he's very a, much master, a, a master at what he does. So you have to put that guy at a level where let him refine your product. He can do it because he's an expert in this thing. Jim, so, 
Can you explain really- organizational level that are out of sequence? I, I'm not sure I understood that. Well, if you look at the scale of management, yes, right. <clears throat> I don't know if we'll get to it today. All right, it has levels one through seven. Now, notice the way this is. It has one at the top, and then it goes seven, six, five, four, three, two. Right. So, not only is it out of sequence, it runs in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So, this was a great discovery of mine, where I was able to interlock these two functions, which is of tremendous value to anyone who tries to manage anything. It tells you who your who your consumers are. You know, like for example, an amateur. An amateur is a dilettante. You can sell him something, okay? Because you'll find that your amateur is your best client. If you go to a baseball game, you'll find that almost every guy in that stadium was an amateur baseball player at some point. So you can sell him tickets. He knows enough about it to be interested, to be impressed, and to spend some money on it. So that is what level four at the organizational level is, where you sell things. Okay. So again, it's a little difficult without looking at the scale of management. But if you look at the scale of management and go back and forth, you'll see how this interlocks. And it is a very revolutionary approach. Yeah, very good. Mm -hmm. And again, something I picked up in your book here, you say – ascertaining which level of ability the person has attained and applying the corresponding formula. If you use the scale in this way, you will have consistent success. And I think that's coming through from the way you're explaining the organizational level and how it corresponds to the level of the scale. Thanks, Jim. That's good. Thank you. The next next one we have, which is another very important one, is the scale of memory. Right. And yes, there's... um... I just want to quote you here. You say the primary prerequisite for good memory is courage, because if you can face up to something, you can remember it. Cowardice leads to forgetfulness and then delusion. So maybe you can Mm. expand on that. Sure. Well, I mean, everybody in the mental health field knows this. You know, the guy can't face something so uh, like a guy whose wife leaves him, he's heartbroken. Uh, he becomes a drug addict because he can't face it. So the, the you know the drugs sort of get him to to forget. He gets him sort of out of reality, uh, which obviously is not a good thing. But you know it it will cause his memory to deteriorate. So uh, I found you as a human development engineer that this scale was in play every minute of every session I ever gave to anybody, that I was basically moving people up this scale. Um, This was one of the very early discoveries of what eventually became Septemex. A person who who is in denial has no memory. You know, like you say to a guy, I notice you drink a quart of scotch and pass out on the floor every night. He'll say, yeah. And the next day I get up and go to work. And he'll say, well, you think you're an alcoholic? Oh, no, I'm not an alcoholic. He's in denial. You can't really do anything with this guy from a therapeutic point of view. 
You have to get him out of, out of denial. And when you do, he will come up into sporadic delusional memory, meaning he will start remembering things that never happened. Like this is the guy who says, oh yeah, my father beat me up all the time. And if you go and check, you find out it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. And from that, he'll come up to delusional memory where he has, he has a complete memory, but it's completely delusional. You know, this is, this is like people who say, oh, there was no Holocaust. Their, their, their memory is delusional. And then he'll come up again to, from that to no memory, meaning he comes up to forgetfulness. All right. Now, it's a distinct feeling when you can't remember something, you know. Now, where'd you leave your keys? Yeah, I forgot. But, you know, it's a distinct feeling. There's no delusion connected with it. It's just you have no memory of it. And again, notice the dividing line, level four. Above four is same. Below four is insane. Mm -hmm. So at level four is where the person goes from being insane to being sane. And if you think about it for a minute, uh, let's say you have some guy in a uh, sanitarium. Okay, uh, who thinks he's Abraham Lincoln <laughs> or Theodore Roosevelt? Okay, he has a memory. It's a delusional memory, and he's insane. If you get success with this guy and bring him up, he will sort of come out of that, and he'll get to a state where he really has no memory. You're like starting kind of with a clean slate. Obviously, that's not a good state to be in. Mm -hmm. Now, the level that you find many people in it is a sporadic memory. They can remember some things and not other things. Mm -hmm. And above that is a complete memory. This would be a person who uh, would score very high on academic tests. He has a complete memory. And above that is an even higher level, which is no memory needed. Think about this. What does an angel have to remember? Doesn't have to remember social security number. Doesn't have to remember what medications to take. Doesn't have to remember where he lives. Tommy, he doesn't really yeah. need a memory. And so that's why absolute truth is beyond the, this, the range of human beings. Notice that absolute truth is above one. Uh, absolute falsity is below seven. Right. So person, a person who, uh, even at level seven, it's not absolute falsity. It's maybe 99% falsity. So, okay. Something else in your book, you said uh, it takes, where are we? One needs a good memory to be an effective liar. It takes much less mental effort to be honest. And I, I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People with bad memories make terrible liars. Yes. You have to have an excellent memory uh, in order to be a liar. And, and so, uh, you know, that's why you have people who are honest. Uh, and, you know, they... 
don't particularly have a good memory. You know, it's like the type of guy who doesn't really know a lot of academic subjects, but he's an honest person because he's not trying to make up phony things all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I think as we were talking earlier about uh, literacy with the, the advent of all these electronic devices, uh, I was talking to someone the other day where, before I got a mobile phone, I think I could remember 15 or 20 telephone numbers. And uh, now uh -huh. I'm lucky if I can remember my own because we don't need to. It's all on a, on a memory device That's of right. some sort. Okay, so let's move uh, on let to... Me just Sorry. I just Keep comment, going. comment upon that. Uh, in recent decades, I have started doing old-fashioned arithmetic. Because mm. <laughs> I could see that uh, you know, I was an excellent mathematician in my youth, and I could see that those skills were eroding because you don't have to do arithmetic anymore. So, of course, everybody has access to uh, a calculator now, uh, but I, I don't use it because I want my mind to be sharp. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as I've continued to do this, I notice my skills coming back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do a fair bit of mental arithmetic myself um, for that very same reason. Yeah. Good. Uh, the, uh, what's our, our next scale is the scale of spiritual identity. And this is another interesting one. So over to you, Jim. Okay. First of all, there are people uh, who have no reality on spirituality. Uh, there are even some famous people, there are even people with graduate degrees. They just say, uh, a lot of, you know, psychiatrists, there is no spirit, there's only matter. Okay? Matter, energy, space, and time, that's all. There is nothing beyond that. Now, that is a very small minority of people. A vast majority of the people in the world understand, even if they don't belong to a religion, that there is spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, for those people, this is a very useful scale because it goes all the way from the lowest spiritual identity, which is thinking you are an inanimate object, all the way up to the highest level, which is infinity, which is what uh, in Oriental philosophy they call nirvana. Nirvana means blown out. So the whole idea of the Hindu and Buddhist tradition is that you advance, and as you resolve your karma, eventually you reunite with uh, infinity. You lose your individuality completely and attain the level of God. Uh, actually, if you study world theology uh, globally, you see that all of these things kind of show up one way or another, regardless of the names. For example, an angel. Well, if you actually look at Greco-Roman uh, religion, they call them gods, okay? But actually, from a behavioral point of view, they behave, a lot of them behave a lot more like angels. Mm -hmm. The behavior of angels in the Bible is very similar to way, the way the, uh, the myths of, I use the word myth advisedly, 
the Greco-Roman and Norse mythology, mm -hmm. a lot of those beings are angels. Oh, by the way, you know, 80% of American people aver a belief in angels. Mm -hmm. So it's a very tiny minority of people who do not understand that there is such a thing as an angel. Mm -hmm. I mean, this whole idea of a guy with wings flying around, that's obviously that's, that's foolishness. Uh, but, but an angel is a non-corporeal free being. So this is really important. You, I meaning everybody out there, you should find your level on the scale. Where are you? Most people are at five, which is a persona. Mm -hmm. You say, well, you know, I'm Joe Smith as a persona. Uh, and that guy doesn't really realize he is a spiritual being. He thinks of himself as an identity. And if he gets you know, any real spiritual or therapeutic gain, he will come up to realizing he's a spiritual being. And I had a whole career of advancing people on this scale. You know, a guy would come in as the average guy, a persona, and we would work for a while, and he would say, you know, I'm realizing I'm a spiritual being. I don't have to have this body, you know? Uh, that's a big step. And this is, this is one of the scales where there is, there's not a lot of movement on the scale mm -hmm. during a person's lifetime. You know, like a dog is an animal. He thinks of himself as an animate object. Okay? Mm -hmm. He doesn't really think of himself as a persona because a persona is abstract. But if you pay attention to the whole tradition of Hinduism, they say a person can come back as a cow or a dog and then advance to being a human. So, you know, people do move on this, but not so much within one's lifetime. Right. 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 So let me ask you then, someone who is a spirit, are they on this earth or have they advanced to the next stage? Well, uh, when a person dies, okay, the body is defunct, okay? Yep. He doesn't even get sensation from it. No. He's floating around now in nothingness. And wait a minute. What is this? I'm a spirit. See? Now, according to the theory of reincarnation, that person will probably come back and have another lifetime. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a person who goes on to become an angel and does not come back. So you could be a spirit in a body and a spirit out of a body. And, you know, all this right. business about near-death experiences. I mean, I know people, uh, both famous people and personal friends who, you know, had terrible accidents, left the body, uh, and were sort of floating around, for lack of a better term, and then decided to come back, and then wham, all the pain hits them. Because once you reconnect with the body, all the pain of the accident or illness hits you, which is the thing that knocked you out of it in the first place. Mm. Right. So there was one thing I picked up um, 
on the last page of that chapter, persons who attempt to force spiritual awareness upon those who cannot tolerate it often wind up crucified, assassinated, blacklisted, beaten, fired, incarcerated, etc. Uh, depending on what the method of appropriate of suppression is in vogue or convenient at the time. Uh, and again, as I alluded to earlier with, with what's happening now, we, we're seeing not perhaps on the spiritual realm, but on the belief system, exactly that happening. People being uh, cruci not crucified literally, but being blacklisted, censored. What do they call it? Um, there's another term on social media. So I thought that was a good, a good uh, point that you made there. Right. Yeah, I have known since I was a young man that we were descending into a dark age. I watched it happen right in front of my eyes. Uh, and we're now well into it. Mm -hmm. hmm. We have uh, another, another <clears throat> scale that we need to look at yes. before we get to the end of today's session. So let me yes. move okay. on to the scale of mental deletion. So right. tell us about this one, Jim. Well, yes. Okay. Well, Kathleen, you want to start? Yes, I'd like to start off with, with something that happened to you, Jim, because this is absolutely incredible. So in your book, it's it says here, it is not the experience that makes the incident traumatic. It is rather one's ability to deal with it. And then you go on to describe how you sat quietly through a root canal without anesthetic and when it was done, you just got up and went home. So, I mean, you're right. It depends on how you deal with trauma. And maybe you can explain how is it that somebody can go through such traumatic experience and be absolutely devastated, possibly ruin their entire life versus another person that may experience something similar and then they grow from it. They get stronger from it and they you know they go on to to do great things because of that trauma right so somebody who is easily upset uh would have to do mental deletion at level seven meaning re-experiencing it uh so you say to the guy oh tell me about your automobile accident right and as he's telling you, he's re-experiencing it and he's kind of reducing the impact of it okay. on him. And if the therapy is successful, by re-experiencing that incident, he can sort of say, yeah, it doesn't bother me now. So uh, this is a scale that uh, the overwhelming majority of people on earth are at or near the bottom of this scale. Uh, and you would have to get into some very effective facilitation over a long period of time to move up this scale. But the main point is that you can delete portions of your subconscious. That is what happens. You delete something. So when there's successful therapy or facilitation, the person deletes the content of his subconscious. So he has some terrible thing in his subconscious, meaning, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he's buried it because he can't deal with it. See, like when I had that incident with the root canal, 
Uh, this didn't happen all at once. You know, I went in. The guy couldn't couldn't get it numb. He said, okay, look, I'm putting one antibiotics. Come back next week. Let's try again. So I did that. Came back next week. Still couldn't get me numb. So, look, I had a, a, a tooth that was a problem. Yeah, I do. So I was able to just confront it, deal with it, face up to it. In the same way that you would do is, uh, you know, like Nathan Hale was a spy for George Washington who was executed by the British. And on the gallows, I said, what are your final words? And he said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. So this was a person who had a very high confront. He wasn't crying and saying, oh, don't kill me. You know, he was really defiant about it in a polite way. So this is somebody who would do very well in mental deletion because he had an ability to face up to things. So you have to, you know, pick up the person at the level he's at And then as you proceed in deleting parts of his subconscious, which is what I did for many decades as human development engineer, he will move up the scale. You know, he will say, you know, I'm realizing there's like 30 incidents here that just went poof. Well, that's at five, automaticity. It's like you can get to a point where, let's say you're running incidents where you were beaten, okay? You're... And the guy says, well, you know, it's not just this one incident where I was beat. There's lots of these, and they're all just going poof. And that will be a big uh, turning point for that person, because he lets go of that whole pile of junk. It all deletes at once. Mm-hmm. So this is something that most people will not have any personal understanding of unless they get into some kind of mental deletion. But I'm here to tell you, it can be done. You just have to find somebody who knows how to do it. And and when you're talking about mental deletion, Jim, you're not talking about erasing something from memory, but you're actually helping to reduce the impact of that trauma. That's what you mean by deletion or eliminating the impact, but not necessarily. It's true that you're, it's true that you're eliminating the impact. But the reason the impact is eliminated is because you deleted it from the subconscious. In other words, it's not subconscious anymore. You can remember it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're actually improving your memory. So like, for example, I had a lot of this type of meditative improvement in my life. And I had very bad things that happened to me. And eventually I, I was able to permeate them completely. And I remembered the whole thing, and then it had no ill effect upon me. Like, for example, when I was a kid, I was afraid of dogs, okay? And then one day when I was almost adult size, I realized, you know, I'm like 20 times bigger than this dog. Why am I afraid of it? And it just went poof. And I wasn't afraid of dogs after that. Okay. And do you find that if you're able to delete a trauma of, on a scale of one to 10 at a a level three successfully, when you are now faced with a trauma at level five, it's easier to delete that than if you had not had deleted the level three. Is, is it, uh, is there a progression or not? There's definitely a progression. And as I state in the chapter, what you find in people who are, successfully deleting 
parts of the subconscious is that the bracket will advance. Okay. In other words, a guy will come in at level seven and little by little, he'll start operating at level six where he doesn't really have to re-experience it. He can just recount, recount this, you know, the several related instances. So, and the bracket will advance. So he'll come to a point where he doesn't need to re-experience anything anymore. He can just recount them and then he'll start sometimes getting into an automaticity. We'll say, no, I just realized that it's like I have these, a lifetime of people uh, invalidating me and they all just went away all at once. That's five, automaticity. So obviously the gain, the gain uh, improves geometrically rather than arithmetically. Right. Okay. That's right. what I was asking. No, excellent. Well, we are, we're about out of time. And I think, um, okay. I'm sorry, Kathleen, do you want to ask Jim another question? No, nope. go ahead, Peter. I'm going to stop sharing so okay. everyone can see all of us. And I think we need to, uh, Jim, for our audience who didn't watch the earlier episodes, tell them what you're doing now, um, what your services you offer for your clients. Well, actually, I haven't been uh, doing very much for my clients because you have to realize I spent 25 years writing this book. Right. Uh, and so the further into it I went, the more convinced I was that I had something monumental that could really help millions of people. And so I focused more on the book and less on helping individual people. Okay. Uh, in other words, I realized that I could go from helping people by the hundreds, which is what I had been doing, to helping people by the millions by getting this book out. Right. Because anybody can get this book if he can read English reasonably well. And he can dramatically improve himself by pushing himself up each of these 35 scales. Also, he can help the people around him to move up these scales. Uh, then after the book was published, then I became involved in promotion of the book because just having a book out doesn't do anything. You have to get people to find out about it, which is why I'm here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you go to septemix.com, S-E-P-T-E-M-I-C-S.com, you'll see what many readers have said about it, what many journalists have written about it. You can see some of the reviews and so forth. You can see the list of over 100 uh, interviews that I've given. So you'll see that that's two years of promotion. Uh, you know, And of course, it's getting out there, picking up steam. My aim is getting out. The book is getting out. Uh, this is, in one sense, very difficult. In another sense, very easy because uh, most people do not read books. Of the people who do read books, most of them read fiction books. Of the people who read nonfiction books, most of them are in a slot, meaning mathematicians read mathematics books, historians read history books, and so on. And this subject is a new subject. Mm -hmm. It's not in any of those slots. So I can't really get people interested in it unless they can actually read the book and then they say, wow, Mm -hmm. this is something. Right. So on the one hand, it's a a painful process. And on the other hand, people do convert to it. They they become enthused about it. Mm -hmm. So they become, uh, uh, in a sense, they sort of become promoters of the book themselves because they necessarily use it 
on their friends. Mm. Right. And that's exactly the experience that we've had. Uh, having read the book, it's benefited us tremendously, and we are talking to a lot of people about it. So yes. we are out of time, Jim. Uh, we've mentioned septemics.com for people to get the book and to find out more and read some of the reviews of it. And just to let our listeners and viewers know that in a few weeks' time, Jim will be back with us again for more of the uh, scales. We will cover them. So thank you, Jim, and we look forward to the next time. Yes. Thank, thank you, you Peter. so much for joining us. And until next time, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.